Patriots or Eagles? Eagles? Patriots? Meteor to destroy the stadium and no one wins. <laughs> so someone tomorrow is going to be crowned, right? Someone's going to be the king. And, and even among the team, someone's going to be the MVP, the most valuable people, person, person. Uh, the stadium is going to be filled with people who can afford to go, right? VIPs, very important people. But someone's going to be crowned king. Someone's going to have a great day tomorrow. Someone's not going to have a very good day tomorrow. But that's the thing, isn't it? That's the way it is in life, that, 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 that life seems to favor some and not favor others. This thing of being the king. We're actually going to look at a story tonight of a man who was a king and who was the most powerful person alive at the time. He, he, was, he was a person of unbelievable power. He had the ability to speak life and death and to move armies and to make laws. But at what we're going to see tonight, and as we continue this journey through the book of Esther, is the truth is, is that he was a very, very weak man. He was a man who was crippled with insecurity. He was a man who, whose entire life was being manipulated by one person after another. Truly, you'll start noticing it in this book. This king, is he doesn't make one decision for himself. Everything he decides, someone else recommends. He's easily manipulated. He's crippled by insecurity, by fear, and, and not having a sense of who he is. He's a person who's led by compulsion. And, and we're going to learn an awful lot from this guy who's a very, very bad example. We began a journey last week, right? We started this study of the book of Esther. And I hope you've had some opportunity to start using the devotions and getting prayed up and getting ready. Um, because this week we're going to dive in. We're going to dive in by looking at the king who is the ruler of the world. Let's take a look at Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Look what it says. It says, Now in the days of Azazaris, the, the Azazaris. And so this is a person who people would know and, and people would have heard of. And, and, and indeed, history records that just about everything we read about him in the book of Esther is actually accurate in terms of the kind of person he was. So it's the Azazars who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. He says, in those days, when King Azar sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. For all his officials and servants, the armies of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors and the provinces were all before him. And so here's this king who rules really the known world for them at this point. And, and, he, and he wants to display all his greatness. And so he calls all his officials in and he throws a feast. Now look what it says. Verse 4 is really important. It says, while he showed, look at this, the riches of his royal glory. And so the first thing we learn about this king is that this is a king who's very concerned with his glory. Now, one of the things that we discover in following our king is that people who seek their own personal glory are actually really small people. It doesn't stop there, though, because he, he wants to display or show his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Insecure people, listen, listen, listen. Insecure people seek their own greatness. They put what they want first. They become obsessed with with 
their greatness and displaying their greatness. He says, now, he displayed this feast, and he did it for many days, 180 days. And so this is a guy for almost a half a year, you know, displayed all that he had, had this royal feast, this never-ending party. He's trying to impress. He's trying to make, you know, a a statement. And what we're going to see, actually, is that this is a guy who doesn't know who he is. He's a guy who has trouble being alone. We're going to see here in a little bit that he actually has trouble sleeping. He's actually riddled with fear and insecurity. Now, now, before we dive into this next part, because we're going to learn a lot more about this guy, is I want to just ask you this question for you to consider. Where are you the king? Where are you the person who's in charge? The person who, who is the expert, the person who, who is, is just the, the one who is in control. Is it, is it at work? Is it on a sports team? Is it, is it you know, at school? Is it, is it as a parent? Well, well, let me ask you this question. When you are the king, when you're in charge, when you have control, when you have power, what kind of king are you? Are you a, a king who's interested in glory? And, and glory looks like credit? and fame, and being seen? Are you one who's concerned about greatness, and, and you accomplishing great things, and, and so people became an end to a greater mean to your own greatness? And so, so when we think about this king, what we're going we're gonna to learn is that he's confused about what it really means to live a glorious life, and what it means to live a great life. So, now look what else we can learn about him. Look, look at this in verse 5. It says, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa and the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven more days. So on top of that, he has another feast. Now, this is a, a different feast. This is a feast for just the people who are in the citadel, who, who rule with them. And so this is the VIP feast, okay? This is for very important people. And, and this lasts for seven days in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hanging fastened with cord and fine limit and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver and mosaic pavements and all kinds of fine different marbles and mother of pearl and precious stones. So, so the picture is, is grandeur and, and pretense and showing off. Now he's taking the most powerful people and he's displaying all of this to all the people. And, and, and what you need to understand about this is that, that this is all about, about ingratiating. It's about showing his greatness, showing his splendor. Look at verse 7. He says, drinks were served and golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to the edict. So he made a rule that there was no compulsion. So basically, you can drink as much as you want, open bar. And so what you're going to discover about this king is that he has a problem. He has a problem of, of, of people-pleasing and being insecure. He has a problem of compulsion that, that he, he starts to drink. And when he starts to drink, we're going to see another problem. He starts getting angry. Now, now he goes on to say after there's no, it goes on after verse 8 and there's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to the staff of his palace to do as each person desired. Now, Queen Vashti, his queen, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king. Now, now, several things about this king that will help you understand just who he is. Several things, and I've said it this way. How can we spot a little big person? That is to say, a person who maybe has authority, but no influence. A person who has wealth, but no riches. A person who has access to all kinds of information, 
but doesn't really have wisdom. Well, this king is an example of that. Several things about this king. First of all, he's crippled by insecurity. Now, now it might be because of who his father was. His father was a great king, Artaxerxes. And actually, some translations, the King James actually says that this king is Artaxerxes. But the best manuscripts we have say that uh, his son is actually the king. But his son, Artaxerxes, was powerful, and he was a conqueror, and he was dominant, and he was an amazing leader. And, And perhaps that was why this king was so insecure. And as you study through the book of Esther, you're going to see it time and again. He's, he's constantly got his finger up saying, what will people want? What's the popular way to go? What's the easy way to go? You know, what will I have to do for people to like me? You know, maybe I can give them a gift or I can, I can puff them up or I can say the right thing or give the right thing. I mean, I have the whole world and yet I desperately want people to like me. He shows off. It, it might express itself in some people's lives by dropping names or forever talking about their education or their experiences. But, but it's driven by insecurity. And I'm going to tell you a little secret about insecurity that, that might surprise you. And here's just the deal. Everybody, everybody, everybody has insecurity. Every single person is insecurity. And here's the deal. You want to learn how to love people? Identify how their insecurity expresses itself. Because once you see how that insecurity is expressing itself, well, then you understand that, that very often the, the behaviors that are bothering you are actually behaviors that are coming from brokenness and you can feel compassion. Let me explain what I mean. I mean, it's obvious. It's obvious sometimes insecurity. A person's very quiet, timid. Okay, that's an insecure person. And and when you get to know their story, you may understand that they had a dominant person in their life or, or a pain or personality or some other thing. But sometimes the seemingly most seemingly secure people are actually insecure. So the person who is loud and brash and arrogant, when you rep, rep, recognize that that's their insecurity expressing itself, then all of a sudden you can get see past that, start to get to know them, and maybe befriend them and help them get past that. Other people become insecure, and like I say, by dropping names or, or by, by talking about all their experiences. Other people are insecure by, you know, acting like they're smarter than everyone. Or they, they pull back, and you know what, I'm not going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to just hold back and be the smart one. And when you start understanding that everybody holds a, a core insecurity then all of a sudden it humanizes us all. Now, this is the really important thing for us, is the difference between people who live with their insecurity and manage it well, and the people who don't is self-awareness. So when you are aware of your insecurity, and you have community where you can talk about your insecurity, and you can admit it, and even learn to laugh at it a little bit, it loses its power over you. But when your insecurity is blind, and you know what, you can't see it, well, it has a tendency to cripple you. It has a tendency to own you and express itself in behaviors where you're trying to stack yourself on top of someone else. We're going to see this even closer in the king's life. Now, the second characteristic of how to spot a little big person is temper. Temper, temper, temper. What we're going to see about this king is that he cannot control his temper, particularly when he is drinking. And he starts drinking, he just gets out of control. And several times it, it says the king's anger burned. He exploded. He gets so mad one time, he's got to get up and leave the room. I mean, this is a guy who has a temper. And, and sometimes temper expresses itself, right, with big explosions. Some people's temper is scary when they get quiet. Some people's temper, you know, looks like blowing little things out of proportion to win an argument. 
Some people's temper looks like, you know, just this emotional lack of control that'll cause us to blame or accuse or some other thing. And, and when temper begins to define us, we might fool ourselves into thinking we're something that we're not. Now, now, the third thing that we can see in this man's life that'll help us spot a little big person is that this person is overwhelmed with anxiety. And very often they put out that they're calm, they're cool, and they're collected. But the truth is, they're anxious all the time. They're afraid all the time. And, and, and so we're going to see this in this king's life. He's constantly asking for advice, looking around, feeling over there. This is a guy who has trouble sleeping at night. This is a guy who makes decisions. We're going to see in just a minute. He makes decisions out of fear rather than, than being aware of his fear. You know, we all have fear, just like anxiety, just like um, um, insecurity. But being aware of it and then saying, you know what, I'm not going to let my fear own me or drive me. I'm going to give it to God, and I'm going to make decisions based on right and wrong. We're going to see this king can't do that. And so anxiety and be owned and driven by that, that's another characteristic. Another characteristic of how to spot a little big person is this person is easily manipulated. Again, this is a king who doesn't make one decision in this book, and he makes some really, really big decisions only when other people manipulate him. And we'll see this in just a little bit. And so this is the most powerful person in the world who actually is being controlled by everybody in the book. His officials, this guy by the name of Haman, and then his wife, uh, Esther, actually all the way down to his butler who makes a suggestion. And based on that suggestion, he puts a guy to death. And so this is a guy who's easily manipulated. The other thing we're going to see is that he's relationally shallow. Uh, that's a characteristic of a, of a little person. That is to say that instead of being vulnerable with people and having real, honest, peer relationships, he seeks to dominate, he seeks to control, he keeps to man- seeks to manipulate people rather than to love. He tries to buy and bribe people's loyalty rather than earn it through respect and through influence. The other characteristic and the last characteristic of how we can spot a little big person is that they're impulsive. And in this guy's case, it's especially with words. And that's a dangerous thing because according to the law of his land, uh, historically we know this true, is that when he makes a law, that law can't be unwritten. Because the idea is that this king is semi-divine, and if a god says something has to happen, well, a god can't be wrong. So to come back and undo it would say, well, maybe he's wrong. Well, if he's wrong, maybe he's not a god. If he's not a god, well, maybe he shouldn't be king. And so when he shoots off his mouth, it has huge, huge consequences. So these are the things we start learning about this king. Now, we see him and we understand that this is a fellow who is just a foolish man. But we're going to see that his answers, answers, uh, his his actions have consequences. I want to look at just one of the stories here tonight. The first one that we see, and it has to do with um, what happens at one of these feasts. It's in chapter, uh, chapter 1, and it begins in verse 9. It says this. It says, now on the seventh day, when the king's heart was merry. So dude's been drinking seven days with all his buddies. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded all these people with confusing names... The seven eunuchs. Now, what that means, the seven eunuchs, is these were the people who was in charge of the king's harem. Another sermon, another day. All right, so who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti between, before, Queen Vashti before the king with his royal crown in order to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she, she was lovely to look at. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, look at this now, the king became enraged and his anger 
burned within him. And so here's a guy who's just been embarrassed in front of his friends, who, who has been drinking, who came up with this great idea. You know what? You've seen my gold bowls. You've seen my treasures. You've seen my palace. Let me show you. I have the most beautiful wife in the world. And so I'm going to put her on display so that I will look great, so that you will see my glory. It's just really a despicable action. It's a degrading action. And the queen, who also has been having a feast, says, I won't do it. She becomes just defiant and will not do it. And the king becomes enraged. Now, what you're going to see is this pattern repeated over and over again. King starts drinking, gets upset, says something stupid, has to back it up with stupid action. Okay? I'm really glad that we don't have people have this problem anymore. Okay? You thought of someone other than yourself, didn't you? All right, so don't do that. All right, obviously we don't want to do that. But here's the deal. His officials who are around him see an opportunity. And you're going to see how this plays out. That they actually want the king to do something, but they're going to, they're going to get the king to make a law in regard to this situation, a stupid law, a backwards law, a silly law, and then they're going to, they're going to tack on a little rider on it, a little extra building. We'd say a little pork on the end of this law. And what we're going to see is what they actually wanted to do was a truly despicable thing, but they needed to manipulate the king. And so what they said is, Your Majesty, this cannot happen. Your wife has shown disrespect to her husband. Now, all the women in all the kingdom are going to look to her, and they're going to start showing disrespects to their husband. And you know what's going to happen, king? Listen to the fear. We're going to lose control. Our houses are going to become chaos. This is going to get mad. And all the men start getting mad. And the king's looking around. He says, I just spent 187 days making these people happy, and now they're mad at me. And the king starts listening to all this. Maybe that's more wine. And starts thinking. And then all of a sudden, they say, you know, we should make a, a law. King, you should make an edict. And it says, the king made an edict. And the edict was just super, super silly. You can read it uh, as, you're, as you're doing your devotions this week. He basically says, I'm making a law that all wives will respect their husbands. It's a law now. Okay? Like, that's going to work. You know? It's going to be a law. And I'm going to make a rule, and they have to submit, and they have to do what they're told, and it is now a law. And then the official said to him, King, there's something we want you to throw on the backside. And, and, and you'll see it here in, in this last verse. It's in, it's in verse 22. Watch this now. It says, Now he made this law. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man must be master of his own household. And so that's the law, that you must master your household. Women must submit. Just do this thing. We're going to make it a law. We're going to put it on the books. And look at the next thing it says. And speak according to the language of his people. Do you see that last part there? See, that's what the officials were trying to do. They were trying to manipulate because here's what was going on. This, this great, great empire had been made up of hundreds and hundreds of conquered people. And those conquered people were spread throughout the, the empire because that was their strategy. Take them away from their land and separate them and put them in different places. And here's the deal. These ones who were in power in the capital were afraid that these people, these foreign people, would start assimilating into their culture. They would be afraid that they would start becoming, you know, competition for their position and their lands. And, and they, they, they didn't want that. And so they made a rule that the only language that a person could speak is the language of their fathers. And the idea with that would have been is that would keep them in their place. That would keep them away from the capital. That would keep them small. That would keep them under control. And the king doesn't realize he's just been played. This guy gets played 
over and over and over and over again in this book. You know, there's, there's one big problem that this king has, is that he believes his own press. He, he believes what people have said to him, that his life was about his glory and about his greatness. And any time we, we do that, we get insecure. Because we, we know that at the end of the day, my glory and that greatness isn't that great. My glory isn't that glorious. And, and, and then we start getting afraid because, you know what, if, if I get exposed or people see, you know, then, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my glory and my greatness. You see, see, the problem is that he was living for himself. He was living as though he were actually the king. His problem was he was living as an owner, not as a steward. You see, a, a great person, even a great earthly king or a great leader or a great business owner or a great coach or a great teacher or a great captain of the sports team understands that you are put in that position not to rule, not to extend your glory, not to extend your greatness, but rather to use what you have been given, everything you've been given, especially influence, that's what the work at worship is all about, the, the conference coming out, to use your influence for the nature and the purposes of the greater king, of God. That what we have has been given to us as a trust. That's our time, our treasure, our talents, our influence, our job, our families. And when, when we start living like this guy, as though the world revolved around me, and that it's all about my greatness and my goodness well, then that's when things start falling apart. And we talked deeply this last year about living like an owner as opposed to living as a steward. And, and one of the most beautiful things about transferring, you know, this thing of, of no longer being the owner back to God and living as a steward, steward, a steward is that you start living for another person's glory and greatness, and then you get to share in that. You get to bask in that. You get to be part of that for eternity. You start finding this thing of anxiety start losing its grip over you because the really big problems are the owner's problems. And if you're not the owner anymore, then all of a sudden you can start releasing things to them. Now, there's several things we said last year, and it'd just be worth saying again, that, that, that would help us understand the difference between an owner and a steward. And you really see it in this king's life. First of all, uh, an owner lives as an owner they expect to be served. They think that, that the greatest one is the one who, who gets to give the orders, the greatest one who gets to be propped up, that they're ones who served. And because, we're going to see this particularly in Esther, she understands this about the king, she can manipulate him easy, and she does. Now, now the second thing is that an owner is a person that comes to believe that he's entitled or she's entitled to what they have. Somehow or another, they were smarter or better or, or more this or more that. And, and, and we, we grossly exaggerate our contribution and we minimize the contributions of other people. And when we do that, we get filled with a sense of entitlement. I've earned this. It's mine. I've got it. And when that starts driving us, then all of a sudden we're saying, this is mine. I'm entitled to it rather than it all belongs to God. And everything I have came from God, my intelligence, my giftedness, and, 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 and so it frees us from entitlement. Another sign of an owner is that the, uh, this person's possessions, power, and privilege are what make them great. And we see that in the king, right? He, he wants to display all of his bowls full of all the kinds of wine from all over the world and, and the incredible, you know, crib he had made. I said crib to be cool, and I'm sorry. <laughs> incredible palace that he had and and you know this incredible thing and he and he says all this is what makes me great that was an indication that he was an owner 
that somehow or another, and he was born into it. I mean, his father actually was the one who did all the conquering, and he was born into it, but this is what makes me great. You see, they had an actual theology that the king was divine, that the king was God. We wouldn't actually say that out loud, but when we live like an owner instead of a, 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 a steward, we live as though we're the king. We live as though we're God. And it's a horrible way to live. It's an oppressive way to live. It's, a, it's just a horrible way to live. Now, last year, we also talked about some of the signs of a steward. A steward, for instance, uh, they lived their life as a gift that's meant to be given in service. That this life was entrusted to me as a gift from God, and the most meaningful, the best thing, the most beautiful thing I can do is live it in service to other people. They understand that when you're given a position of leadership, it's a position of service and responsibility, not privilege and entitlement. And so you do what you do not to make yourself great, but to serve others. Uh, a steward is a person that believes that, that uh, what they own obligates them. It doesn't, it doesn't entitle them. That is to say, I've been given this stuff. Now I'm called to do something with it. That is to say, the gifts and the intelligence and the talents are not just meant for me. They're given to me by God to do the things that God wants me to do with them. A steward is a person that understands that their greatness is seen when they use their possessions, their power, their privilege to serve for the common good. And and we recognize this, right? The people who we consider truly great in history are those people who actually have served the common good. And so this shift is stunning. And this king is meant to be a a picture of a bad example. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at another guy by the name of Mordecai who lives his life as a steward in the most beautiful way. He lives it for God and unto God and to serve the common good of his people and will make huge sacrifices for the common good. And, And he's the one who God lifts up at the end of the story. He's the one who God says is great, not us. I mean, we follow Jesus, right? And it's Jesus, did he come to earth as an owner? And he was actually the owner. Or as a steward. He, he came as a, a servant. One who came and used what he had for the common good. He used what he had to serve others. And, and the Bible says this. He, it says, you know, God exalted him to the highest place. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Because he humbled himself. Humbled himself even to death. That's the ultimate picture of what it means to be a steward, what it means to recognize everything belongs to God. You know, um, last year, as, as part of this thing of, um, of being a, a steward as opposed to an, uh, uh, an owner, we did a lot of teaching on this thing of giving God first fruits and tithing. And there was a family that was super impacted by that. It's one of the great families in our church. Names are the Barnharts, and they started this practice of tithing, and God really showed them an awful lot of things through it. And I just want to go ahead and hear a little bit of their story. My name is Rebecca Barnhart. This is my husband, Michael. We started going to Jacob's Well in 2007. I was very slow to coming to, uh, coming around to tithing and really the obedience factor. Um, it was on her heart. She continued to pray that, that I would see the level of commitment and really what God has asked us to do from an obedience standpoint. And it took me uh, probably about 10 years, 10, 11 years to get to that point. Here I am, and God's granted me 100% of, of income, and I'm struggling to give him 10% back to further his kingdom. We made the commitment and haven't turned back. God has always provided, and even when as a family we felt that we were short or a little tight, we always had a house over our head, electricity, 
food and all of those important things God has always provided for us. Over this last year, uh, our I would say our obedience was challenged a bit. I lost my uh, position at work after 15 years in April and went through six months of, of not being employed. That first 10% was going to be a tithe, and I don't think it ever became a question for us. God, he took us through those six months uh, extremely well, extremely healthy as a family. Um, we had to give back in certain areas, but um, we always knew where the, the first fruits were going to come. If you're someone who is struggling with the thought of giving, what I can say is God always provides. God put us in that position. Uh, God knew well before I knew that that April was going to come and there would be six months uh, worth of really questions with, without answers that I had right away. But it allowed us to really journey together spiritually uh, as well as through serving. My thoughts on Live It Well, initially we were so excited to just kind of dig in and see where above and beyond what we were already giving could we come up with more. We may not be exactly where we want to be with all of that, but we're very confident that God will provide. We're excited about the direction of Jacob's Well right now, uh, especially with the purchase of the property next door, because that really opens up so many opportunities. There's so many needs, and that property, we know in our hearts, God has a place for it. We may not know it yet what it's going to be, uh, but there's definitely plenty of needs within the Chippewa Valley for it. Live It Well has been a challenge for us, but it's also been an opportunity for us as a family to grow. It's really about more than just the financial aspect, but also the commitment and spiritual journey that we can have in serving here in the community. What really excites us about Live It Well is the fact that we've been so blessed as a family by the resources that have been provided to us by Jacob's Well, and this gives us a chance to give back and provide that to other families in the future. first heard that that faith story um, after uh, the video folks finished it, um, I knew I wanted to use it this weekend. Because it, what they're talking about is not a financial thing. They're talking about is a spiritual thing. Um, you know, tithing is not about money. It's not about finances. It's about ownership and obedience. It's about this understanding that, get, you know what, um, God owns my life. God doesn't own 10% of my life. He owns 100% of my life, every aspect of my life. And, and, and when we come to this thing of finances and we say to God, God, okay, you know what? I'm trying to own it. I'm trying to manage it. When it comes to this thing of every aspect of our life, tithing is an opportunity for us to just sometimes painfully say, you know what, God? I'm going to put you back in control of being owner. And you've taught me that, that you've given me 100%. You've called me to give 100% back as a first fruit, not as an act of the church needs money or those kind of things, but as an act of worship as an act of obedience. I, I told the, the staff and our, our board, even last year, and I would say it again, that, that if we like got a jillion dollars just like, you know, struck oil on the new land, all right, I would still teach tithing. You know why? Because it's not about finances. It's a spiritual practice. So that when I do this practice, it regularly realigns myself that says, you know what, I am not the king. It's not about my greatness. It's not about my glory. It's not about me owning. It's about me recognizing that my life belongs to God. And when I do that spiritual practice, my goodness, it makes me more aware of God. 
more dependent on God in all the different aspects of my life. If he can conquer this part of my life, it's amazing the other parts that he can conquer in the most beautiful, beautiful way. And so we see this in this king, right? That This king who's filled with anxiety, filled with insecurity, because he is trying to own his own life, filled with a desire to be known and loved, but ultimately a very alone person. This is a person who needs to move from, from being an owner to a steward, just like so many of us. And so I want to challenge you with some steps. The first step, step I really want to challenge you with is to go ahead and get the devotion this week. Now, last week we started the devotions, so you'd start week two of the devotions, but you'd be right on time because the first week was kind of a preparation week because we knew some of you wouldn't sign up right away. So, so we did that. Um, and, and so this week would be the week where you start digging into the book of Esther. In addition to that, this is the week we kick off groups. You say, darn it, I miss groups. You didn't mix groups. You can actually go back to the group table. We've got multiple Esther groups you know, just about every day of the week, all kinds of different times, that you could become part of so you can start talking about these things because this is a practice of, of digging deep and, and growing. This week we'll talk deeply about moving from that thing of being an owner to a, 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 a steward. I would say, too, is the devotion's actually available. Actually, we're asking for like two bucks for this if, if you got it. Um, but it's actually for free on our website. You can download it as an ebook on whatever device you have, and you could use it that way. But the point is, is this would be an opportunity for you to start this journey. Join a group, start using the devotion. If this thing of tithing is something, say, I got to look into that. I actually want to encourage you to go back and listen to the message from last year. It's still on our website, jacobswellchurch.church, called First Fruits. It's February 5th. The message from February 5th last year, as the last time we talked about this, February 4th last year, and, and listen to that message, because so many people have said there was something about that message that helped me understand it on a heart level more than anything else. Now, there's one other thing I want to challenge you with in next steps, and this is a little different, and it's very related to what we're talking about, because here's the deal. This is a message, this is a series about um, an angry guy, right? An angry guy who doesn't have control, and because of that, great evil comes in the world. Well, there is a great evil that comes in the world, and I don't know if you realize this, but tomorrow is the day where there will be more human trafficking activity than any other day of the year because of the Super Bowl. It goes up exponentially, particularly in the city where the Super Bowl is hosted. Okay, And so our partners at Fierce Freedom have come up with an initiative. First of all, they're having a rally tomorrow before the Super Bowl. Um, it is a rally to fight human trafficking. And they're going to come together, and they're going to create awareness. They're going to hold a press conference. Um, um, and it's just going to be a very cool thing. If you want to be part of that, that would be a cool thing. But one of the things they're actually asking people to do is either make a sign or grab one of these signs here. And actually take a picture with this sign. Look at that good-looking guy up there with that sign. So, and because what we want you to do is we want to use whatever influence we have to speak against this thing of human trafficking. So what does this do? Well, it creates awareness. It helps people become educated. It helps our law enforcement know that we're supporting in this. It creates fear in the hearts of perpetrators. If, if we start having hundreds and even thousands of people who will take their picture Posted on social media with the hashtag, not in my town. And it goes on to your social media, all your different, you know, Facebooks and Snaps and all those other kinds of like that. And then all of a sudden people have seen this over and over again. What is that? And they start looking into this and they start reeling it. We start dragging the evil into the light out of the darkness. And listen, as stewards, we use our influence to say it's not okay. 
If you're a, a business leader, a community leader, or a teacher, or a coach, or someone with influence, people who you have influence will see this, and they will say, well, that's guy standing against it. And so we actually have, in, in both of our venues this weekend, um, a, a table out there with a bunch of these. We just want to encourage you, go ahead and grab one of these, take a picture, go home, post it, and I just want to see my news feed full of people saying, not in my town. You say, that kind of stuff doesn't go on here. It goes on in the Chippewa Valley. goes on in Eau Claire. We have people in our church today who have been trafficked. And it's, it's something, if you don't know more about it, you need to go to Freeze Freedom, find out more about it, or come to the rally. Those of you who do know, let's just blow this thing up. Because it's one of the really dark, horrible things about the Super Bowl that people don't, um, don't realize. It's one of our, our challenges. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the team to come out. And as the team's coming out, um, let's just ask God to speak to our hearts about what it means to move away from the foolishness of living as an owner to the wisdom of living as a steward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of this scripture. I thank you for the incredible power in the book of Esther. I thank you, Father, for this example of this king. And we would pray, Father, that we would look in our own lives and we would identify areas of insecurity. We would recognize you know, areas of compulsion that are under control with Perhaps alcohol, or maybe maybe anger that's out of control, or 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 fear and anxiety. Father, we just ask you to help us begin this journey to move away from being a person who's king of our own life, owner of our own life, to being a person who's a steward and a servant, using the things that you have given us to serve others in the common good. Father, help us see that that's a life that matters. That's a life of meaning. That's a life of significance. That's a life, Father, um, that would help us to just live and live live our lives well. In Jesus' name, amen.